This morning, I want to speak about a controversial subject in our time. It really shouldn't be, but it is. I want to talk about homosexuality. Now, the truth is, everything I've said over the past several weeks, in principle, already settles where we should be on this issue. That is, in principle, I've already spoken to the subject. But there are some detailed issues that need to be looked at, and there's some particulars that worth taking into consideration. What I think you'll find is if we talk about this subject, it also speaks to us in many other areas of our lives. Because really, it doesn't matter what the human trouble might be, the gospel speaks to that problem. The gospel speaks powerfully. It speaks of grace and faith and repentance and salvation. So whatever we say on this subject is going to speak to all of us, I think, in one way or another. I want to go back to the passage that we have read any number of times, but it's important to lay the foundation. Genesis 1, 27 and 8 says, God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Then over in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Down to verse 21, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made the woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So here we see God's creational intent. You have the man and woman, both created in the image of God, but they're created to complement one another. In fact, they complement one another even in their bodies because by complementing one another, they can come together and actually, under the blessing of God, have children. That's part of God's good plan. And so, man and woman complement one another. They come together in a covenantal bond, a one flesh bond that God intends. It is not for an hour or a day or a month or a year. It is as long as the two shall live. They are united with one another. This covenantal bond is the expression of love. They love one another, and you see delight as well. Adam sees his new wife, the one God created, and brings to him. This is all God's idea. And he says, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He is, he is thrilled that God has provided this, this complement to himself. So this is all God's plan, and all of it fits together, including 
including the, the children who come in to the family as a result of this union. Now, there are lots of ways that we can miss God's plan. Lots of ways. Promiscuity is one way. Instead of one man with one woman entering into covenant relationship, people can have relationships with many different people. Polygamy is another way to violate God's good order. Or today, people talk about polyamory. Same thing. It is a violation of God's good order. But there are other ways. Think of divorce. That's not what God intends for us originally. That's not how God wants it to be with us. Adultery certainly is a violation of God's good order. Abortion is as well. We don't want the children that come through a union. And so they are put aside. This all is a violation of God's good order. Homosexuality deviates from God's good order. That is the teaching of all Scripture. If you go through the entire Bible, you will never find a single positive reference to homosexuality, not one time. There aren't a lot of passages that address it directly, but indirectly they're everywhere. For example, in the Greek, porneia, often translated sexual immorality, was understood to include homosexuality in that time and place. And so it is not acceptable from a biblical point of view. There's not the slightest bit of question about that. Now, there are people who do question it, and they marshal various arguments in support of it. But in each case, what you'll find is that there is a lot of sleight of hand in interpreting passages, a lot of special pleading. I have seen arguments made by scholars of some reputation who could never get away with their argument if they were arguing on any other topic. They couldn't get away with it. They'd be laughed at for trying. But we in this culture are highly motivated to try to get the Bible to say what we want it to say on this particular topic. And so people get a pass. There's a New Testament scholar, Robert Gagnon, who wrote a book, The Bible and Homosexuality. I think we have a slide for it. That exhaustively goes through the Scripture and deals with the many arguments that people make trying to suggest that actually homosexuality is an acceptable uh, way of life for a Christian. And he obliterates them all. He does detailed exegesis of the Scripture, and there is no escape. He's never been answered. He's never been answered. And I commend that book to you if, it, if that's an issue that you want to study at more depth. Now, there are some who are in Christian seminaries or Christian churches who with real, with real integrity say, I, with a certain kind of integrity, I totally disagree, but with real integrity, they'll say that, well, you know, I think it, it is acceptable in some situations. But the argument is like the one used by Gene Robinson, who was the first 
partnered non-celibate gay man to be made a bishop in the Episcopal Church. I remember hearing him say one time that if Paul knew what we know about homosexuality, he never would have spoken against it. Now, see, what's working there is a certain what you call hermeneutic, a way of interpreting the Bible. And the idea is you have a certain notion of what is just and right, and then you comb through the Bible and accept what falls in line with your original assumption, and you reject what does not. Now, ordinarily, as Christians, when we read the Bible, we know it all testifies to Jesus, so Jesus is the interpretive key, and we try to understand it through him. But there are many today who say, no, what you need to do is to establish what is just. Of course, you interpret what you think is just. And then whatever in the Bible doesn't conform to that, that gets thrown out. Now, I couldn't disagree with that view more, but at least it has the integrity of saying, you know what? The Bible's wrong on some things. And there are people who argue just that way. But the thing to keep in mind is if you take that approach, if you take that approach, the Bible has ceased to be an authority in your religious life. It's no longer an authority. It might be an inspiration. It might be literature that confirms some of your convictions. It may be educational in some ways. But when push comes to shove, you decide when to accept it or when not to. It's no longer the authority. The authority is that original assumption you had that you brought to the Bible. And so it's very important, I think, to, to start out with that clear understanding that homosexuality, that is the practice of homosexuality, is not compatible with what the Bible teaches. But there's more to it than that. There are flesh and blood human beings who are trying to make their way through life and this is an issue, this is something that many struggle with. Um, there are Christians who deal continually with same-sex attraction, undoubtedly in this room. And they live with that and struggle with that and they try to make sense of it. Many times they have prayed to the point of weeping that God would change them so that they would no longer feel the attractions that they feel. And though there are some testimonies, and there's actually been some research that in some cases, people do find a change in orientation, not in most, and certainly not in those who are most deeply um, attracted to the same sex. So what about those people? See, this is the reason why many of us struggle with this issue, because because we're decent human beings who have empathy. We put ourselves in the position of somebody else and we think, how would I feel? Where would I be? I know that's what I do. I think if I were in their shoes, I could see where they would struggle with this. A man named Wesley Hill is a professor of New Testament at Western Theological Seminary. He wrote this book, Washed and Waiting, and in this book, he tells something of his own story and his own journey as a Christian who early on realized that he was attracted to the same sex. 
He grew up in a conservative, Bible-believing church. He struggled when he realized that he wasn't interested in girls. He'd be with guys who would be talking about girls, and he didn't care about it. He didn't care about it, but he had to pretend that he cared about it. And so he spent all his years growing up trying to pretend that he was like all these, everybody else that he was hanging out with when he wasn't like them, at least in this particular area. And it was a struggle for him. And he prayed that God would deliver him. And it was this kept, tightly kept secret in his life till he finally summoned up the courage to tell a friend. And he, he gives an account of that and how he told others. What he discovered was that there were Many who would tell him, well, it's okay, you know, to have a partner. There's nothing wrong with that. And even many Christians who would say, you know, it's okay. But he couldn't go there. He couldn't go there because he said, it's clear what the Bible teaches. I am a Christian and I want to follow the way of Jesus Christ. And he said, for me, that means the difficult choice of living a celibate life pursuing Jesus, seeking to obey him in all things. And so this book, he talks about that, and he explains some of the struggles that he had and still has around it. And I want to read to you a couple of quotes from it. Listen to this. Engaging with God and entering the transformative life of the church does not mean we get a kind of free pass an unconditional love that leaves us where we are. Instead, we get a fiercely demanding love, a divine love that will never let us escape from its purifying, renovating, and ultimately healing grip. Well, that's for all of us, folks. That's not just for Wesley Hill as he deals with same-sex attraction. That's for all of us, that God receives us in love but he loves us too much to just leave us as we are. And there are times when we don't know how to let go of something that seems so much a part of us that, that to let go of it seems like losing a part of us. We don't even know how. And yet the love of God, the love of God goes to work and takes us through that process. There are no exceptions to that. Nobody gets a pass. Nobody gets a pass. We have all kinds of issues represented in this room and on this platform, all sorts of issues. Nobody gets a pass. The demanding love of God calls us to follow Jesus. Here's another quote. Imitating Jesus, conforming my thoughts, beliefs, desires, and hopes to his, sharing his life, Embracing his gospel's no to gay sex, I became more fully alive, not less. According to the Christian story, true Christ-like holiness is the same thing as true humanness. To give up gay sex is to say yes to a full, rich, abundant life. The gospel brings life and fulfillment. The devil gives lies and leads us astray in so many ways and so many earnest, good Christians who struggle in this area 
hardly know what to listen to because of all the messages being pushed constantly their way. But that's what Wesley Hill's trying to say. Is it easy? No, it's not easy, he would say. And yet, as I follow Christ, I find out what life is. And he points out that Jesus himself was a single man. I talked about this when I talked about singleness. Jesus was a Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything he wouldn't do. Jesus walked a holy life before God, and he had no intimate relationship with another human being of the sort we're talking about. Was he unfulfilled? Did he lack the fullness of God or the blessedness of human life? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. As Hill points out, the gospel calls the same-sex attracted Christian to the same walk as it calls the single Christian who's attracted to the opposite sex. The same walk is to follow Jesus in purity and faithfulness, knowing that if we fall, if we stumble, there is forgiveness. That's where this washed and waiting comes from, washed and forgiven, and waiting till that day when we are raised up and in our new bodies are no longer struggling with the things we've struggled with our whole lives, but our redemption is completed. And so here's what he says. Washed and waiting, that is my life, my identity as one who is forgiven and spiritually cleansed and my struggle as one who perseveres with a frustrating thorn in the flesh, looking forward to what God has promised to do. Who makes it through life without a thorn in the flesh? Who makes it through life perfectly whole? Who knows what it is to be strong every day throughout their journey? No one, no one. But then Paul says, when I am weak, then in the grace of God, I am strong. So all people should have empathy for one another and should be kind even to themselves, recognizing that we do struggle, we do have battles. There's no question about that. Just one of them, just one of them, there is I mean, there are as many struggles as are human beings. Just one of them is same-sex attraction. Just one. Just one of many. And the person who is attracted to the same sex is called to walk the same path as everybody else. Some years ago, I was talking with a student, Christian, story somewhat like Wesley Hill's. Uh, he went to therapy to try to stop being gay. He prayed to stop being gay. He even quoted the line, you can't pray the gay away. That was his experience. So he was trying to work through that. 
I mean, this is someone who believed in Christ. He was trying to work through that. He was trying to figure out, okay, how can I live a righteous life and follow Christ? It's the same thing, it's the same thing that, that many people struggle with, whether it's this area of sin or another. So he wants to know, and he, we're talking. He wants to talk about it, and we're talking. And he says there's just one scripture, though, that, I mean, it's nuclear, and I just don't know what to do with it. Well, I knew before he said what scripture that was. I want you to turn to the nuclear scripture that I've got to deal with, Romans chapter 1. I don't have a whole lot of time, and I have to get through this. It's very important is very important. I beg you to hear what I'm saying through this whole section. Verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Skipping down to 24, therefore God has given them over to the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they would so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. And then Paul goes on and he lists in detail all the sorts of things, all the kinds of sins that people commit. Now, this is Paul at his most offensive. Seriously. I remember reading about a Christian group that passed out this scripture on campus and got kicked off campus for doing so. That was in the 1970s. This passage has been offensive for a long, long time. And may I say, it's also very hurtful to many people who struggle with same-sex attraction. And it's because, in my opinion, it's misunderstood at times. So Paul talks about homosexuality here and he calls it unnatural. What he's thinking of here is God's intent in Genesis. That's what he's thinking. That our very bodies point to God's will for us. Our bodies didn't just accidentally evolve. God has formed us so that we complement one another. There's a purpose in that. And so that is God's good intention. And so Paul's saying there are some people who are throwing that away and they're violating God's created order. Now, there are lots of sins that are mentioned here, but Paul does highlight homosexuality because he thinks that's an illustration of the exchange, that, the exchange that's going on, exchanging the truth about God for a lie, exchanging what is right and proper before God for something that is not. But here's the thing that's often missed. Paul is not talking about 
individuals one by one here. He is stepping back, and in language that was not unfamiliar within Judaism of that time, he is critiquing the whole culture. You may not know, but homosexuality was widely practiced and in some sectors applauded in the ancient world. So Paul is looking at the whole culture. He's speaking in the plural here, and he's talking about a culture that has rejected the truth of God. Because it's rejected the truth of God, because it's placed itself outside the grace of God, it lives under God's wrath. The sins that then get mentioned, not just homosexuality, but including homosexuality, the sins that get mentioned are not the cause for wrath. They are the consequence of wrath. All right? You see that when we read through? It's a consequence of wrath. But we're talking about a culture. Now, why do I keep emphasizing that? Let me use an analogy that is an imperfect analogy. I grant that. Okay, please don't nitpick my analogy. Try to see the point I'm, I'm seeking to make. I have known people who are alcoholics who were good people who struggled with that addiction. No doubt their, their biology had something to do with it. Maybe their upbringing, whatever it may be, but they were struggling with alcoholism. And they didn't hate God. They were calling on God to help them and to deliver them. I've known Christians in church dealing with alcoholism. So we understand that. So, and so we don't condemn that. We don't say, oh, you're under a curse. We recognize the moral struggle. But what would you say if you're talking about a culture where not only is alcohol allowed, drunkenness is celebrated. What would you think about a culture where it's joked about, where it's promoted, where you're encouraged, where if you say anything against it, well, you're going to pay the consequences. What, what would you say about a culture that ignores all the consequences to it and says, hey, drink up. That's how you have a good time. What would you think about a culture like that? You would think a culture like that was decadent, that it was decaying from within, that it was far, far from God, right? And in a culture like that, it would be all the harder for that individual, that friend you know who's struggling with alcohol, it'd be all the harder for them to live free of addiction because of everything around them. What I'm saying to you is this, Romans 1, I'm going to put it, I, I don't mean this hatefully, but I want to be accurate. Romans 1, in my opinion, is not speaking to the same-sex person who's trying to figure out how they're going to live their life. It's written to gay pride parades. It's written to the celebration of that which is contrary to the will of God. But it's not only written to that. It's written to a culture. <laughs> now I'm tempted to start listing things. I mean, look around. I mean, look around. Read the list in Romans 1. Don't stop with homosexual. Read the whole list and tell me if that doesn't look like what we see in our land today. 
And if it does, what does that tell us? It tells us that we are already experiencing the wrath of God. Now, the wrath of God's a funny thing because it says here, God's wrath is shown by giving people over to what they choose. Giving them over. Not striking them down, but giving them over. The wrath of God to some people can look like the mercy of God or the approval of God. He's letting it go. But it's not. It's allowing people to reap the consequences. Now, this is a hard thing, but listen, it's a hard thing to many people who are seeking to live lives of integrity with same-sex attraction. And it's very important that we don't get confused on these issues. So this student who wanted to talk to me about this passage, we talked about it. I tried to explain it as I, as I tried to explain it to you right now. And he just kind of nodded his head. He said, okay, I get it. I get it. I'm going to tell you what he said. I'm just going to use his words, okay? He said, okay, I, I get it. That means I'm not filthy and cursed. So many people think they're filthy and cursed who need to know that Jesus Christ loves them, that they're created in the image of God, that they have their own temptations, and I have mine, and you have yours. We're all in this together. We're all in this together. And we've got to remember that. The way our church, I've got to close, I've got to close. The way our church needs to, needs to think about this, think of the thief on the cross. So Jesus is dying between two thieves. And, and the one thief rebukes the other who had been abusing Jesus. He said, he said, you and I deserve what we're getting, but this man has done nothing wrong. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Realize what he did. Number one, he aligned with the other sinner. And he said, we, we deserve what we're experiencing. He sides with Jesus. He's done nothing wrong, he says. He sides with Jesus against himself and unites himself with the other thief. Folks, that's what we need to do with our children and our brothers and sisters and our friends and our neighbors. We don't slap a label on them and say, oh, you're gay and that's it. No, that's not what we do. Neither do we say, oh, well, it, it's okay, when the Bible doesn't say it's okay. What we do is we talk to them as we. What makes us so different if that doesn't happen to be our temptation? For some of us, it is. But we, and we know that we deserve judgment. Jesus, he's the righteous one. And we simply pray, Lord, remember me. Remember my brother. Remember my sister. Lord, have mercy on us all. That's the kind of church we need to be. So we're going to share the Lord's Supper. You know, when we're, when we're baptized, it's a one-time thing that says we are now 
justified before God and part of the family of God. The Lord's Supper is ongoing because we constantly take in the life of God and and we constantly receive his forgiveness and his cleansing. And so let all of us, let all of us, as as we partake, say, Jesus, remember me. Remember me and remember us. We all need your mercy.